You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And I think until we understand the root cause of the issue and also define what is the issue we're trying to address, we're not going to really be able to do a good job of crafting a solution. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at the Justice Department's attempts to combat ransomware. I've got the story of pending legislation targeting social media algorithms. And later in the show, my conversation with Jenny Lee from Arendt Fox LLP to discuss the recent Facebook whistleblower testimony. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's jump into some stories here. Why don't you start things off for us? So we have big news coming from the Department of Justice by way of the New York Times. In an article uh, posted by Katie Benner and Nicole uh, Perlroth at the New York Times, we find out that the Justice Department filed charges against two alleged perpetrators of ransomware attacks. Hmm. Uh, So one of them is against a Russian individual named Yevgeny Polyanin, uh, who is accused of deploying the ransomware known as Revil or Revel. Our evil, we say. Are evil, we yeah. say. Okay. <laughs> but 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 <laughs> that doesn't mean it's correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many, everyone has their own version. We, you know, it's so. kind of like GIF or JIF. It, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. about your personality, right. which one you use. <laughs> right. It's a Rorschach test. <laughs> uh, so this was for a ransomware attack that took place in uh, largely in businesses and, and uh, government institutions in Texas in 2019. Hmm. Uh, and then the second indictment was against a Ukrainian national, Yaroslav Vasinsky, who is alleged to have conducted multiple ransomware attacks, including the one on the technology company Kaseya. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one I, I know particularly well because Kaseya runs uh, the software for a contractor that works closely with a small city in Maryland called Leonardtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that ransomware attack, uh, the small city of Leonardtown mm-hmm. suffered significant kinetic effects, cost a lot of money to, to rebuild their system. Oh, wow. And that was just one you know, tiny example of the impacts of that ransomware attack. Mm. So these are two uh, you know, pretty high-profile indictments and a sign that the Justice Department is taking ransomware seriously. They're doing everything they can to try and uh, discourage perpetrators around the globe from... Uh, participating in these types of ransomware attacks. Okay. Uh, Here's the drawback, though. The question is, how do we actually get to these people and punish them? Right. Uh, A major issue is that one of these perpetrators is a Russian national. Let's just say a pretty large percentage of people known to have perpetrated ransomware attacks are Russian nationals. Yep. 
And unfortunately for us, we don't have a working extradition treaty with Russia. Uh, I was doing a little uh, half-assed internet research, as we say, <laughs> on this subject. There was actually a U.S.-Russian uh, extradition treaty signed in 1893 with hmm. Tsarist Russia. Uh, but then at some point in the 1970s, through a Justice Department memo, you know, this was mid-Cold War, it seems like we decided that that extradition treaty uh, wasn't actually in place. Hmm. Uh, and we know that now because we've had these high-profile instances of people who have been charged with crimes in the United States hiding out in Russia, uh, the most notorious example being Edward Snowden. But then also, you know, some of the people who were charged uh, as part of the Mueller investigation for misinformation hmm. uh, against U.S. nationals. Uh, so that that's a significant problem. It's hard for us to gain jurisdiction and, and bring these cyber criminals to justice. For this Ukrainian guy, luckily for us, uh, he set foot in Poland. We, yeah. we do have an extradition treaty with Poland. Uh, so he was arrested there. He's going to be extradited uh, to the United States and will face trial in our in our U.S. court system. Um, but the problem with a lot of these other perpetrators is, you know, we may have all the evidence in the world to charge them. I'm sure we could put together a, a really compelling trial, talk about the impact of ransomware on you know our local governments, on our businesses, uh, on the meatpacking industry, you know I'm, I'm sure we could put together a, a very good case, but it's very difficult to bring these alleged criminals under our jurisdiction. Yeah, and you know it seems as though a kind of like you mentioned with that one gentleman, they get a little lazy. They decide they want to vacation somewhere outside of their mother country. And that's Bad where idea we, genes, as they say. <laughs> and, that's, and that tends to be where we nab them. So uh, what other tools does the Department of Justice have available to them to put some pressure on them? Are there any other places that they can come at them? So there are really two things that can be done here. The first is uh, try and attack the financial angle, usually through the Department of Treasury, and seize the money gained via ransomware attacks. Hmm. So uh, in this Justice Department announcement, they they announced that from this uh, alleged Russian perpetrator, they seized $6.1 million uh, of assets allegedly gained through this ransomware attack hmm. uh, and through uh, other cyber crimes. That sounds well and good, and I, I think that is a very effective tool. Um, you know, you can track the financial transactions and, you know, put a little, uh, put your, the, big hand of the U.S. government in some of these bank accounts and extract this money, right. um, that's not always going to work. Uh, you know, that, that might not be enough of a disincentive if you're in Russia um, because let's say they catch only, you know, 50% of people they're able to seize the assets. That leaves, you know, the rest of the 50% who are getting off scot-free after yeah. committing a ransomware attack. And so what if I grab $6 million of the $10 million that you've stolen – you're still doing pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. you're, still, you're still making out like a bandit. That's yeah. not enough of a disincentive. Right, right. The other avenue is through diplomacy. And we've tried to do this. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I'm not exactly thrilled or excited about the prospects of some sort of new extradition treaty with Russia um, that specifically uh, covers ransomware attacks or, you know, some type of bilateral agreement where the Russian government would actually crack down on these malicious actors. We've now seen through two U.S. presidential administrations, the Russian government uh, has, has been, under Vladimir Putin, has been quite resistant to going after cyber criminals. Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden said in a recent meeting with, uh, a recent virtual meeting with 
Vladimir Putin that the U.S. is taking ransomware attacks very seriously. Um, we're going to go after your criminals. Uh, you know, so it was kind of a shot across the bow. And, uh, you know, I, that so far has not brought Russia to the table to come up with some sort of agreement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, until they start taking these attacks seriously or until it becomes enough of a diplomatic concern, maybe because of sanctions that are imposed or other potential punishments, I don't see why they would, um, you know, change uh, change their trajectory and not really doing anything about ransomware attacks. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was hope after the uh, Colonial Pipeline incident uh, and where we, <laughs> we sent some strong diplomatic uh, signals that it was time to knock it off. And we saw some of these ransomware gangs say, we're closing shop, we're shutting down. And I think there was hope that maybe that was in response to that, that maybe they got the message from the powers that be in Russia to knock it off or at least lay low for a while. Seems now like they were just laying low for a while. We've seen some of these groups are, you know, they'll go quieter and then they'll spin up again or they'll come back under a different name. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think to your point, don't get too optimistic that these folks are going away. I mean, what other things can we, can diplomatically, do we threaten sanctions? What, what other things do we have to hold against uh, Russia proper? I mean, the more powerful the country, the less powerful our diplomatic tools are going to be. Um, sanctions is the most powerful one. Um, you know, you're not going to see... You can see, you know, some offensive cyber operations against Russia potentially, although that, you know, can have some second-order effects that aren't going to be great for the United States, and that would also be an escalation. Right. Um, Otherwise, it's isolating them diplomatically and imposing sanctions. We have imposed sanctions on Russia for a variety of things. So far, you know, at least as it relates to this particular issue, it doesn't seem to be uh, enough of a disincentive. Um, You know, so I I, I think— because there's this lack of hope uh, about displ- uh, diplomacy with the Russian government, we have to look at all of these other potential avenues, including seizing assets and broadening enforcement actions. So you have people on the ground in a bunch of different countries where we do have extradition treaties, working with law enforcement in those countries, uh, and trying to catch cyber criminals who happen to cross into their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And they note in this article that we've actually had a, a good deal of success in doing that. We've made arrests in a number of countries recently. I mentioned Poland, uh, but also in South Korea uh, and a, a couple of other countries where we do have strong diplomatic relationships. Yeah. Um, one of the intelligence analysts uh, at a cybersecurity firm who was quoted in this said, we need, quote, a sustained cooperative law enforcement operation uh, to make it more expensive to conduct ransomware attacks. Um, that's that's what it's about. It's about scaring potential cyber criminals. As of right now, there is there are preliminary indications that, as at least at least as it relates to these particular cyber criminals, they've gone quiet. People who monitor these these forums, who are scouring the dark web looking for activity from Revil and and Darkside and, and other bad actors, have noticed that they've gone dark. Um, so, you know, they'll probably, as you say, pop back up in different forms. Um, but at least in the short term, you know that that at least has some positive effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I, I you know I would love to be more optimistic about this, but it's hard to be <laughs> given given just what we see. You know, it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be much stemming the tide. I guess it's uh, 
I don't know, you know, bailing water on the Titanic or something like that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, we need a good Titanic <laughs> metaphor for yeah. this. I yeah. mean, the real tragedy of it all is that, you know, these are relatively sophisticated actors, and the people they end up hurting are small businesses, mom-and-pop shops, people who rely on their local governments for services. Yeah. Um, you know, they there was a ransomware attack that hit a police department in Fulton, New York. Uh, that's a small town. I've been there. My in-laws are, are from that area. Um, you know, they're not going to be particularly well-equipped to deal with these types of attacks. Right. Uh, so it does have a real-world impact, and it's good that the Justice Department is taking this seriously. I hope that there's some mechanism where, in the long term, we can we can hold these cyber criminals accountable. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point, too, that, uh, you know, it's the high-dollar value ones that make headlines, but the the you know the ones that are i don't i don't want to say nuisance attacks but those ones targeting small businesses for smaller dollar amounts those have continued those have not fallen off cuz it's it's easy pickings it's low hanging fruit for many of these operators and so we don't hear about those but they're still happening and uh extremely costly for those small and medium sized businesses as well yeah i mean it's like the difference in trying to rob you know a bank in midtown manhattan Versus trying to rob a, uh, you know, ex-urban convenience store. Right. You're, the 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 winnings, uh, the potential winnings are going to be different. Um, but uh, it is easier to attack those smaller entities that, that don't have the same kind of robust defenses. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes as always. Uh, my story uh, this week, uh, I'm linking to a story from Mashable. This is written by Jack Morse, but been a lot of coverage of this uh, all over the place. This is uh, this one's titled "Lawmakers Come for Facebook Algorithm with Filter Bubble Bill." Uh, so we have a bipartisan group of lawmakers. Uh, they have put forward a bill that they're calling the Filter Bubble Transparency Act. Tragic lack of an acronym there. That's a missed opportunity. <laughs> it's right. It's the, the football. Yeah, that, that does <laughs> right. not come off the uh, tongue well. Not, not on their game here, no. these lawmakers. Yeah. Um, and basically what this comes down to is you've got uh, a group of lawmakers, like we said, a bipartisan group, who are putting forward legislation that would make that would require the big social media companies to give users the option of having uh, their interactions with these social media companies to happen in a non-algorithmic way. In other words, uh, have the option to switch off the algorithmic ranking system that they use to put things in front of you. Um, so, for example. Twitter already has what they refer to, I believe they call it a reverse chronological timeline. Mm -hmm. So basically you can see stuff as it happens rather than what Twitter thinks will be interesting to you. It's crucial for live sporting events, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to hear about what happened an hour ago. I want an analysis of the last play. Right. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but uh, you know, obviously this is targeting Facebook. Or should I say meta? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's targeting them because I think they're the the poster child for this sort of algorithmic presentation of uh, channeling information to people. Um, so what they're trying to do here is just give users the option to throw a switch and not have that information fed to them in that way. Of course, you know, for the providers, that's not a good thing because that's how they make their money right. is by putting things in front of you and being able to place ads in front of you based on things they that you find interesting. 
Um, what do you make of this, Ben? First of all, the the fact that this is coming from a a truly bipartisan group of legislators that's interesting. Yeah, no, it is noteworthy, right? Absolutely noteworthy. Um, and it's you know knowing these members of Congress, these this is not a group of individuals that agree on much. Um, uh-huh. We're talking about a couple of very conservative members and a couple of very liberal progressive members. Uh, who put this bill together. Hmm. Um, you know, this proposal is limited in a number of ways. The main way is that it only applies to the big guys. Mm. Um, so any company that has 500 or fewer employees or possesses data on fewer than 1 million people uh, will not be covered under this bill. Hmm. But, you know, I think that makes sense because the targets are the Facebook slash metas of the world uh, yeah. and Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm wondering how much opposition Facebook slash Meta will put up in opposition to this. I mean, they've signaled a willingness to consider regulation when it comes to things like Section 230. Obviously, this would be a big hit to their business model. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Um, What I'm wondering is you're giving people an opt-out. How many people are going to miss the algorithmic content when it's gone? I I sort of think, you know, there are going to be some very privacy-conscious people the type of people who disable location services on their phone, Um, you know, the type of people like our listeners and and us who are cautious about this stuff. And then there are going to be other people who are like, you know what? I kind of miss seeing that targeted advertisement. (laughs) Well, yeah, this is a lot less fun. This is, uh, right, this is like, you know, going out to dinner and not being able to have dessert. Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. I mean, we have become addicted to content that's very narrowly tailored to our interests Mm -hmm. and our buying habits. Um, you know, have you ever tried to uh, browse a website, you know, where they're maybe you're using somebody else's computer, it doesn't have your cookies, and it just seems different? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's something that many users, despite what they say or, you know, how they would be – how they would respond to an opinion poll, you know, they might actually respond – they might actually not opt out of, out of the service. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I think, you know, when you look at Twitter, who has something like this already built in, um, I've seen many people say that when they switch over to the reverse chronological version, um, magically and mystically, it switches itself back o- over time. Right. You know, <laughs> you always have to re- <laughs> recheck that box. Right, yeah. right. And, and uh, you know, I would say based on Facebook's past history of, of uh, whether or not they tend to operate in good faith when it comes to these sorts of things, uh, I, would, I would expect the same from them unless there was an actual rule here that would prohibit them from doing so. Right. But, I think you're right. I think the thing that people like about Facebook, the the itch that it scratches for people, part of that is the algorithmic stuff. So to to turn it completely off, it, to, to have just an on-off switch, to not be able to dial it down or have any sort of granularity in dialing it in, I think you're right. A lot of people will try it out and they'll say, this is no fun, and they'll turn it back on. And that's that. But I, I guess for the folks who want it, it's good to have it, right? Right. Um, you know, and that leaves us with the question of, of how likely is it that this bill will actually become law? Yeah. Um, as you know, and I've said this many times, the likeliness of any proposed piece of legislation becoming law in our polarized and largely dysfunctional Cong- uh, Congress is pretty low, even though this does have bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, this this is something that is pretty ambitious and with the lobbying power of, of Facebook slash Meta, um, you know, this is this seems to me like the type of thing that's going to get bottled up in committee. Mm. Get those Silicon Valley legislators in there saying, eh, let's hold our horses a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if I if I were a betting man, I would most likely say this does not stand a realistic chance of passing. Yeah. Um, now, that's just for the short term. In the long run, you know, as Congress tries to take action to rein in these algorithms, this is the low-hanging fruit because mm-hmm. it would be voluntary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's, people would still have to opt out of it. So mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter could still have algorithmic content, you know, with most people, as, as, we've, say, as we've said, maybe not opting out. Right. Um, they can still make their money. You know, one other reason that the tech companies might not be as resistant to something like this is if the federal government regulates the algorithm, uh, algorithmic content like this, that would preempt state action. Mm. Uh, so prevent companies like Facebook from having to deal with 50 separate state regimes trying to regulate algorithmic content. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do it, it's, you know, from their perspective, it's just better to have one standard that comes from the federal government. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing I've seen in some of the commentary on this is uh, some folks, oh, dare I say pedantically poo-pooing uh, the definition of algorithm. Ah, um, uh, yes. That, that these, you know, those these out-of-touch legislators don't know what algorithm means and this so this is meaningless and they're using the term improperly and everything online is an algorithm and and i just uh, i i sigh ruefully and say let's not miss the forest for the trees right exactly uh, <laughs> but some people can't help themselves yeah i mean we, we know what the target of this legislation is right. and we don't have to narrow down in a proper dictionary definition of algorithm to understand what these lawmakers are trying to do yeah yeah, still, it uh, gets gets my goat up. I, I, I can see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, uh, that that would be a good opportunity for us to move on <laughs> before my dander <laughs> gets to Let's cut it out, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we will have a link to all the stories in our show notes, of course, and we would love to hear from you. If you have something you would like us to cover, you can send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jenny Lee. She is an attorney at Arendt Fox LLP, and uh, we discussed the recent Facebook whistleblower testimony. Uh, really interesting stuff. Here's my conversation with Jenny Lee. One of the most striking aspects about the issues in Haugen's complaints to the SEC, speaking from the perspective as a lawyer, given my 
chosen field here, is what those issues reveal to be lacking about the U.S. legal system. At the end of the day, you know, this was a significant public assertion about the practices of Facebook. And the um, the protocols at the SEC are an indirect mechanism at a high level, if you think about it, to confront the concerns at hand, because the SEC regulates the problem in the society of investor harm, and they do not necessarily directly regulate harm on consumers or children or users of social media. And so at the heart of the SEC complaints are essentially what misrepresentations may allegedly have been made to investors. But what's missing in our U.S. legal system right now is a, arguably a single federal regulator whose process or tip line can be triggered to help oversee corporate conduct that affects these issues of social media-based consumer protection, children's protection, or online content users. Are there other federal agencies that uh, could step in here? Would this be under their categories? Absolutely. There's the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Federal Communications Commission. And, uh, you know, I think that the existence of this patchwork quilt of agencies is itself, you know, emblematic of a larger issue in the legal system. You know, there's this conflict between the pace at which tech is evolving versus how quickly we can update our laws. So right now at the federal level, these regulations apply to businesses in terms of the activity in question. And so that is why you know, any number of different agencies could potentially find a hook in some of the issues. It just depends on what you define to be the activity and issue. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that one of the, the issues here is that it, when it comes to something like social media, you know, that's different than selling a product in a brick and mortar store. If I sell a dangerous product and a, a, a consumer gets harmed, a, a child gets hurt or or someone, you know, people compare this a lot of times to a big tobacco. You know, if I have a, a smokers who get, uh, you know, have health issues, well, that that's pretty easy to draw a line between. But it seems like online organizations like Facebook, as you, I think, very well point out, it's a little bit more fuzzy there. We, it's it's harder to say who's directly responsible for regulating them. Right. And I think one of the difficulties as attorneys and policymakers and other stakeholders might have seen thus far is that we're also trying to operate in this world where we have inherited legacy legal systems. So I fully agree with your point that these issues kind of ring true in the consumer protection realm. And I do think that there will be activities that occur, uh, you know, in, in the major players in D.C. on that front in terms of consumer protection. But there is also this other rule, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And that one is technically belonging to the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, so it's almost like the online, you know, um, economy of, of communication arguably also belongs in our federal, you know, communications regulations. Really what Section 230 has done is, you know, decades ago initially allowed for there to be a safe harbor for tech companies, you know, back 
in the 90s, the world was a very different place. And many of these tech companies were, were much smaller and pioneering technologies were being put forth. And the Congress at that time wanted in the CDA to allow the internet economy to flourish. And so that there was a need, according to the policy underlying that law, to uh, allow there to be a safe harbor so that if you're running, say, a platform, whether that be social media or home improvement apps to find contractors or you know, online reviews about hotels or whatever it is, that if you're running that platform, you are, are not to be liable for whatever other people publish on your platform, similar to the idea that if you are a library, you know, you're not liable for any offenses that are, you know, kind of conveyed in the books that might be written by authors that place their books in the library. So hmm. at that time, it was this sort of incentive was, you know, there were two parts to the CDA and forgive me for getting pretty, <laughs> I, I nerd out on these legal issues because I look yeah. at this stuff all day. Um, yeah. You know, it was both, it was two things. It was that the provider of the platform is not to be liable for the actions or statements of the third parties who go on that platform. And the second part was, and and oh, by the way, you know, if there are some good reasons why the platform may want to regulate itself so that people aren't doing harmful or illegal things on their platform. So as long as the platform is operating in good faith and following their own internal rules that that they've put together on how to regulate themselves, then they also are, you know, sort of insulated from liability as well. Mm. And and if you fast forward now from there to, you know, 30 years later, we're right. in a very different world now. And a lot of these issues that were raised in in the whistleblower testimony, but also are raised by others in uh, Silicon Valley, like Tristan Harris, for example. Uh, you know, these issues, whether they be harm to young girls or uh, misinformation or whether it be, uh, you know, conservative voices that are being so-called sanctioned or censored or whether it be, you know, to my reference to, to Tristan's uh, work, and his team, you know, this idea about the attention economy and like the downgrading of the human experience when people are addicted to screens or are kind of living in a in a prolonged state of of conflict and antagonism or destruction, isolation, you know, fake news that as a society that is a negative thing to to be happening. So all, all of these issues, you know, whatever whatever the beef might be, I think really squarely collides with the Section 230 thing because mm. uh, <laughs> the Section 230 liability exemption is really what incentivizes all companies and, um, you know, sort of establishes who's going to be accountable or what are the consequences of the of the actions of different people that use social media? And also, you know, to the whistleblower's point, what are the consequences of creating or promoting or enhancing algorithms that put forward a specific intended effect? Mm. 
Well, on the other side of this testimony, in your estimation, what are the methods that we have available to us that are likely to actually see meaningful change? Are, are, do we have tools? Can, can the, the regulators you know, turn the dials to, uh, to put us in a better place here when it comes to, for example, Facebook? What is interesting on the consumer protection front is that there's certainly the, there's the Section 5 of the FTC Act, which also exists in a similar form in um, Section 1031, 1036 of the Dodd-Frank Act. And that is a kind of this ban on uh, any practice that is unfair, deceptive, or abusive. And, you know, you could take a page out of the, the playbook of the FTC and the CFPB where um, the regulators have, have for a very long time identified specific conduct that seems unfair or abusive. And as long as they can assemble evidence, if you will, that they've met the, the legal elements of those claims, then they can declare a practice to, to be, you know, a violation of that. It's called UDAP, Unfair Deceptive Abusive Acts and Practices. And there's been many, uh, I think there's decades of precedent of the FTC using the UDAP authority to go after privacy issues. You know, listeners of our show have heard me wonder uh, repeatedly if we need to have some sort of equivalent of the FDA for algorithms online, you know, to to put companies, these social media companies in the position of, of first having to demonstrate that their algorithms do no harm, you know, in the same way that uh, pharmaceuticals have to go through testing procedures. It's a bit of, admittedly, it's a bit of a pie-in-the-sky idea of mine, but I, I, since you are an expert in this area, I thought I would run it by you and see uh, easy to, uh, an idea that has any merit whatsoever. Well, I think that even the proposal, uh, I believe, that was put forth after the, the hearings in Congress this spring by Facebook was one where, um, you know, as between the, the three companies that testified, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, Facebook was the only one at that time that actually made a suggestion to set up a protocol for, you know, this issue relating to the adequacy of their self-monitoring efforts. And, I think there's a lot of merit to your idea in the sense that when we're still trying to understand the technology and we're still trying to define what we think the harm is, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it is really great to not jump too fast to write rules that will not make sense or that will be antiquated in just a few months or years. So, you know, what's really nice about your analogy with the FDA is that I understand that in the FDA, there are also panels of experts that will be, you know, congregated and, and opine on different potential therapies and, and drug solutions. And in general, I think I hesitate when whenever we're creating a new bureaucracy, because I do think that it's it's much more elegant to be as efficient as possible. And mm. that having myself been a former CFPB official and now working with the regulators and the government on a daily basis, there certainly are challenges that just government processes make things sometimes more um, 
slower in pace than what the private sector can accomplish. But with mm-hmm. that, <laughs> with that caveat yeah. in mind, right? I yeah. mean, I do think it's great to have like a data driven approach where we can try to, you know, a- assign this work to a particular body. And maybe it's not an agency, but maybe it could be even a kind of like a quasi public private partnership, or maybe it's like a, a private agency first for self-regulation where the government has oversight on top of that or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think it does make a lot of sense because right now there are so many different concerns from both, you know, sides of the aisle. And, you know, we're seeing in this political environment that these issues are creating some strange bedfellows that uh, it would be great if we could just first define what is bothering us and what we want the legislators to actually act upon in this kind of holistic, data-driven way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. It's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to say what you want when you can't get people to agree on what the ideal outcome might be. I certainly think there's low-hanging fruit. Like, for example, though I recently... Uh, learned about Ashton Kushner's nonprofit and the work that that their team is doing to combat online sex abuse or human trafficking. I mean, there's just mm. some low hanging fruit where I don't think we'll disagree that these are things that would need to be addressed. But the more nuanced issue that you raised about kind of the effects, more specifically of of algorithms and some of these things about you know like. Who, who should decide right. which, you know, like which attractive photograph of a, of a female celebrity should be taken down because young girls, I mean, I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of young girls in my family and a daughter myself, and these issues are very important, but it's sort of like, how do you implement a solution to that concern and who decides what the algorithm should do or say and what the thresholds would be? I mean, those issues are a lot more, I think, nuanced than some of the ones where we can just all agree are horrendous problems in society that need to be addressed right away. Yeah, yeah. Where do you suppose a good place is to begin then? I mean, there are obviously there are places where people are in agreement and places where there is wide disagreement. Where do you suppose a good place to start would be? Well, I think it would be good to take that task in two parts. So probably the first part would be that at least we can make incremental progress on issues that are low hanging fruit, things that, that most people would agree on, like online child sex abuse or human trafficking issues or things that we can perceive are occurring on the internet that are already defined to be clearly illegal, if not criminal. And so we can at least try to prioritize those things to begin getting something done right away. The second part of it, I think, is is just really we need to also get some in, input and feedback from the tech companies and based upon their expertise, try to better understand what can be done with regard to these algorithms and and identify the root of the issue. How much of this is due to the fact that Maybe there's foreign language translation issues, given that these are global companies, versus that we can blame the algorithm itself. And I think until we understand 
the root cause of the issue and also define what is the issue we're trying to address. We're not going to really be able to do a good job of crafting a solution, but at least those are a couple of immediate steps where we can begin to make progress. Ben, what do you think? Really interesting conversation. She's super knowledgeable. Yeah. I was really interested, uh, particularly when she talked about how we don't have a, you know, a regulatory regime that makes enforcement against companies like Facebook easy. Mm. Um, They're subject to regulation uh, from a bunch of different federal agencies. And sometimes that kind of ends up shielding them because there are these jurisdictional disputes between the FTC and the SEC. Right. They um, all so, say, not it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it ends up not being, you know, a very effective or, or valuable system for the consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a weakness of our system. So I thought that aspect was was really interesting. And uh, yeah, it was a great interview. Yeah. Our thanks to Jenny Lee for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate her taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.